Hello, I'm Emmy Vadness, and I'm delighted to invite you to join me for my intuitive development, How to Trust Your Inner Knowing class. We'll meet for four Saturdays starting October 28th on Zoom Live Video. There's a special discount for new Thinking Aloud volunteers. I'll personally guide you to connect with your heart, enhance decision-making, and empower yourself. Ready to embark on this transformative journey? Visit emmyvadness.com to learn more and reserve your spot. We have now released Issue 3 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is destigmatizing the paranormal. My guest is Dr. Manuel Matis, who is a clinical psychiatrist with 40 years of experience in university teaching hospitals and in clinical practice. He is author of The Borders of Normal, A Psychiatrist Destigmatizes the Paranormal. Manuel is located in Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Dr. Matus. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Well, thank you for inviting me. In addition to being a clinical psychiatrist, you yourself have had paranormal experiences. That's right. I've had a number of these experiences throughout my life, but I didn't really go public with them until recently for a variety of reasons. And what made you decide to go public with your experiences? Well, a couple of things. At the time, I was in the midst of a life-threatening illness, which I've since um, overcome. But I thought, well, if not now, when? You know, this would seem to be the optimal moment. Also, at the same time, it just so happened I saw two angels at my father's funeral, one on one on either side of the casket. And to me, that seemed like too big of a thing to keep to myself. I felt the need to share it with other people. And what did you make of seeing those angels? Well. First of all, it was, um, of course, a funeral is always a sad occasion, but seeing the angels brought me a lot of joy because when I saw them, the thought came into my mind that they were called ministering angels. At the time, I didn't know that there were different types of angels, but I just saw them as ministering angels, and I had the idea that they were ministering to my father to help him make the transition from this world to the next world. And being a clinical psychiatrist, how did you make sense of that versus considering that it may be a hallucination or a delusion? I think as a psychiatrist, I've seen and heard lots of um, unusual stories, you might say, from people. And because I have a history of having had paranormal experiences at separate um, occasions throughout my life, I accepted it. And that was my reaction when I first had another body experience. And that was my reaction when I first had a, I saw an apparition in my bedroom. Um, these are very strange and unusual experiences, but somehow I just accepted them as part of life. You know, I know other people have had these experiences. I know I'm not the only one. And they were actually very comforting. You know, they weren't frightening. They weren't disturbing, you know. And when I shared these experiences with other people, they were also very accepting, people in my immediate circle of family and friends. So I didn't feel any shame or any stigma at the time, personally. But I know that a lot of other people who have these experiences do feel shame and stigma, you know, and are reluctant to share them. So in a way, I was taking a step, you know, into an unknown territory by starting to share these experiences. But once I started to share these experiences with other people, then they started to share their experiences with me. And I was surprised at how many people have actually had these experiences but never told anyone. How would you define the paranormal? Well, I, I start with the word paranormal. 
because the prefix para means beside. So we have paralegals working beside lawyers, we have paramedics working beside doctors, we have Paralympics, and so on. So paranormal doesn't mean abnormal, it means beside normal. So if you consider the shape of the bell curve, where, they, where um, probabilities are plotted on a graph, you can see there's a wide range of human behavior and a wide range of phenomena that are under the bell shape, which are considered normal, although at the extreme ends, they, may, they might be rare. So to me, paranormal, going back to the word beside normal, refers to events that are outside of usual normal experience, which might have a bit of um, a supernatural or an otherworldly connotation. Not always, but they could have, you know. And also there are experiences that are sometimes difficult to incorporate into our daily lives. So in a sense, they're, they're strange, they're weird, they're mysterious, you know, and different people react to them in different ways. Why do you think there's so much stigma around the paranormal? Well, for a number of reasons. Um, probably the, the main reason is that people who have these experiences, as you suggested, when I, saw, I told you about seeing the angels, you said, well, didn't you think it was a hallucination or a delusion? I think people, well, so you didn't say that exactly. I'm paraphrasing what you said. You know, but, or why didn't you think it was a hallucination? I mean, I could say it was a hallucination, but I know from my experience and from my reading that hallucinations are actually quite common in the general population. However, there's a lot of stigma attached to mental illness. And a lot of people who have these experiences are afraid that they could be labeled mentally ill. And in fact, that has happened in some cases. You know, so that's one thing. But that relates to a broader question of worrying about what other people think about you. You know, um, that's um, a big problem for a lot of people. Because if you say something that happens to you that other people might think is weird or strange, they might think you're weird or strange, you know. And especially, I think, you know, not so much in recent years, but over the years, a lot of professionals were worried about damaging their reputation. If they say something or if they describe an experience that they had that, you know, other people might consider weird. But I mean, at some point in your life, I think you have to forget about what other people are thinking. And I even say in my book, at some point in your life, you realize they're not actually thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves. You know, and you can't run your life based on what other people are thinking. How do you as a psychiatrist differentiate between what is a psychic phenomena versus psychosis? Okay, well, thank you for that question. I think that's an important question. And as I said, that's the reason why a lot of people don't want to share their experiences, because they're worried they might, be, might become psychotic. But there are a number of ways to distinguish. For example, when I talked about some of the experiences I've had in my lifetime, they didn't really affect me in the sense that they interfered with my life. I was able to shake it off the same way you shake off a dream and then get on with your day, you know. Um, also, the types of hallucinations which are fairly common, for example, someone might hear their name being called out loud and then they turn around and there's no one there. Well, you could call that an auditory hallucination, but it's not a symptom of an illness. It's actually very common, you know. So I think the... Distinguishing features between psychic and psychotic are basically the nature of the hallucination, the frequency, and the severity. Also, whether or not the hallucination interferes with one's ability to function in their daily life, whether at home or at school or at work. So, um, in terms of the nature of the hallucination, psychotic hallucinations are very frightening and disturbing. Non-psychotic hallucinations, I don't even like to use that word hallucination, but there's really no other word, um, they generally are comforting, you know, or reassuring. For example, there's something called grief hallucinations, where um, widows or widowers, you know, will see the deceased loved one, and they might even talk to them. And these experiences are fairly common in recently bereaved. Or, God forbid, if a parent loses a child, you know, often they'll see the child and they'll talk to them. 
and they find these experiences comforting, and these experiences are fairly common. So that's one way to distinguish the nature of the hallucination. Is it frightening? Is it disturbing? Is, or is it comforting and reassuring? That's, that's one way. In terms of the frequency, someone might have a paranormal experience, for example, a recently widowed a person seeing the deceased loved one. Someone might have the experience once in a lifetime or a handful of times, whereas someone who's psychotic will be likely hallucinating frequently possibly every day, possibly every minute of every day. It's not a rare occurrence. You know, it's a distinguishing feature of the illness. So there's the frequency, there's the nature, and then there's the severity. Psychotic hallucinations aren't necessarily voices. They can be the sounds of uh, whirring machinery. They can be the sounds of buzzing insects. There can be more than one voice, two voices talking to each other about the person. They can be threatening. They can be telling the person what to do, so-called command hallucinations. So the, the hallucinations themselves are different. And also, when you make a diagnosis of a psychosis, whether it's schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or delirium or dementia, you can't really make the diagnosis on the basis of a single symptom. There has to be a whole constellation of symptoms, you know, in order to make the diagnosis. And as I said, the symptoms have to be interfering with the person's ability to function. So that's just a brief overview. That's very helpful. It then begs the question then, what really is a hallucination and what might be a spiritual or mystical event? The word hallucination is used in a very broad sense. So even someone who has a spiritual or a mystical event can still be hearing a voice and it can be called a hallucination. It's not so much the experience, it's the interpretation of the experience and what the person does after the experience, what they do with it and how they, how they use it, you know, how it, how it helps them or hurts them. Um, there have been many um, instances, you know, throughout history and even going back to the Bible where people, you know, religious and spiritual figures such as Joan of Arc or St. Francis of Assisi, have had what we call hallucinations. But, you know, as we discussed earlier, the hallucinations didn't interfere with their life. On the contrary, the hallucination, the voice, helped them. It, it gave them direction, you know, and it, and it gave, gave them meaning and purpose. So it's a completely different type of experience from a psychotic hallucination, even though the word may be the same. It sounds like the quality and you say the interpretation of the experience and if it brings perhaps positive benefits, then it's maybe not necessarily psychotic. Yes, up to a point. <laughs> because, of course, there's always um, exceptions to the rule. For, for example, someone who's having a manic episode might have a very elated mood. They might be hallucinating, but they don't think the hallucinations are harmful to them, although it may be harmful to other people. So I'd say what you said was true in a general sense, but there are always exceptions. Have you ever worked with a client or a patient who was experiencing voices and they might have had a hard time deciphering what were helpful or unhelpful voices and how you might have assisted them? Not really, because once the patient you know, is um, having an experience which is serious enough to bring them into the hospital, they're not usually seeing the experience as positive or helpful, you know, um, because it's interfered so much with their life, it's taken them away from their family, and, you know, um, they're, they're seeing those hallucinations for the most part as very um, disturbing. How would you suggest to somebody who is wondering if the voices they're hearing, if they are a delusion or if it is a spiritual manifestation for them? Well, I think that you have to look at um, the content of the hallucination. Um, you have to look at the frequency of the hallucination. And you have to look at whether or not the hallucination is interfering with the person's life. 
I really think it's not that difficult to distinguish the two. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is that there is so much stigma around paranormal experiences, and it's fascinating because on one hand, there are people who are very religious or spiritual who who put these experiences in that category. And then there are those who might be more skeptical in nature or those who maybe haven't had many experiences and they're not quite sure how to make sense of or interpret their experiences. That's true. And often that's the reason why they don't talk about them. But, you know, it's worth pointing out that people who are not religious and who are not spiritual can still have these types of experiences whether it's an out-of-body experience, whether it's a near-death experience, they can really happen to anyone. So they're not predicated on your belief system. you know. Um, now, in terms of religious people who have these experiences, they might want to categorize the experiences either good or evil, from God or from the devil, or from, you know, or from Jesus, you know, or from Satan, you know. But by bringing up those categories, that kind of muddies the waters, in a sense, in my opinion. Where do we go from there? So again, it goes back to people's, their own interpretation of the experience and how it's impacting their lives. Yeah, I would say so. You yourself have also had a near-death experience. Well, I have. Um, and it's what I would call an atypical near-death experience because it wasn't the typical near-death experience where the person, you know, um, sees a tunnel and sees a spiritual being and sees a bright light and so on and, and meets up with deceased relatives. Mine was more focused in the sense that it happened when I was very ill and I was at home and it was winter and it was dark. I went to bed and suddenly I entered another realm, which was like a beautiful painting of the Garden of Eden. Everything was green. Everything was lush, you know. Um, and I was overcome with a feeling of joy, you know, um, being in this other world. And then it ended, but it stayed with me in my memory, of course, you know. Um, the other thing is because I've had, I think I counted, I don't know, maybe six or seven times where I almost died. I think I've had some, some of the experiences that typical near-death experience survivors have and describe. In other words, there's certain after effects of having had a near-death experience. And I, I seem to have had a lot of those because even though I didn't have the typical near-death experience, I was close to death a number of times. And as a result, I feel that the results, the after effects were cumulative over the years. So for example, a typical near-death experience survivor often reports that they lose their fear of death. And I could say that I'm one of those people. I don't fear death the way I used to. Secondly, people who have those experiences often report that they become more spiritual, more altruistic, less materialistic, and they find more meaning and purpose in life. Also, they tend to believe in destiny or fate or predestination, you know, and they also, a lot of people who were very religious prior to the near-death experience, after they have the experience, come to the conclusion that there are many different paths to God, and that one path isn't necessarily superior to another path. Yeah. And also, the increased spirituality seen in near-death survivors, near-death experience survivors, doesn't necessarily translate into greater church attendance. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> you have also overcome leukemia. Yes, that's true. I did. Thank you for thank you for mentioning it because um, it was quite a formative experience, you know, in my younger days. Um, but somehow, when I was diagnosed with leukemia, I always had the thought in my mind that one day I would get better. I always had the feeling that I would overcome it. Um, and I eventually did with the help of an anonymous stem cell donor. But when I was first diagnosed, and that was before I knew anything about stem cell donors, I was offered chemotherapy by the hematologist, but I was seeing a, a herbalist uh, who did traditional Chinese medicine. 
So using herbs and using acupuncture, you know, combined with meditation and visualization, I did quite well for a number of years. But then it got to the point where I needed medication. And I, I gladly accepted it. And it was very helpful. However, I was fortunate in the sense that my hematologist, oncologist, was a believer in complementary medicine. So when I told him before taking this medication that he was offering me, I would like to try these other things. You know, and I mentioned meditation and visualization and the traditional Chinese medicine. He said, that's fine. You know, let's see what happens. And then when he saw I was doing well, each time I went to visit him in his office, he would say, are you still doing the meditation? Are you still doing the visualization? I'd say, yes. He'd say, well, that's, that's good. Keep doing it because whatever you're doing, it's working, you know, and it did work for a while, but then I needed um, the traditional Western medicine as well. So I feel like I had the best of both worlds. What kind of meditation and visualization did you practice? Um, mindfulness meditation. There's visualization about, you know, um, like the, the, the white cells are supposed to fight off infection. But the problem with leukemia is there's too many white blood cells. And then as a result, there's fewer platelets and fewer red blood cells. So I did a visualization involving the white cells decreasing in number, the red blood cells and the platelets increasing in number. So it was, it was very basic. Well, good job. A term you mention is metapsychiatry. Could you share what that is? It's the combination of metaphysics and psychiatry. And the term was introduced by Dr. Stanley Dean, who was a psychiatrist at the University of Florida. And he saw metapsychiatry as the base of a pyramid, the other sides being philosophy, parapsychology, psychiatry, and metaphysics. Now, metaphysics is sometimes defined as the study of being and knowing. So it's really a very basic type of philosophy. Metapsychiatry is the branch of psychiatry that deals with paranormal phenomena. And, and parapsychology, of course, is one of the components. You know, um, now, you know, I see metapsychiatry as not being fixed to any rituals or any rites or any religion, but there is an emphasis on spirituality. And is this something that you see commonly practiced among the psychiatry profession? And to be honest, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. However, I think that um, we're making advances in terms of gaining wider acceptance in the psychiatric community. Um, when I, when my book first came out, I did an interview on CBC Radio, which is a national radio show, radio network in Canada. And one of the psychiatrists that I know who lives in my city said he heard me being interviewed and he, he was the president of the Manitoba Psychiatric Association. And he asked if he could put something in my book, about my book in the newsletter, which went out to every psychiatrist in the province. So just the fact that he was willing to promote my book, knowing, having heard the interview, knowing what the book was about, tells me there is greater acceptance now than there used to be. Also, I feel, you know, as I said, part of the stigma is attached to the same stigma that attaches to mental health issues because people who suffer from mental health, you know, are often stigmatized and sometimes, unfortunately, are made fun of, you know, and ridiculed, which is very, which of course is very cruel to, you know, ridicule or make fun of anyone with a mental health issue, but it does happen. However, in recent years, a number of celebrities, a number of athletes, you know, have been talking about their mental health issues. People like Olympic athletes, like Naomi Osaka, for example, you know, she said she was taking a mental health break. People like Michael Phelps, another Olympic athlete, who talked about his mental health issues and his struggles. Prince Harry has been very open about some of the struggles he went with. And he said, you know, it got to the point where he was so angry after his mother died and he wasn't allowed to talk about it. You know, he took up boxing. That didn't really help. And his older brother told him, you know, you need to go for counseling. And he did. And he found it very helpful. And he talked openly about it. You know, so I think that made a big difference. 
because if Prince Harry can go for counseling, maybe I can go for counseling, you know, um, that somehow makes it more acceptable. And there's, there's a number of different people, you know, who are in, in the public realm who have been talking about their struggles with mental health issues. And, you know, if there's less stigma attached to mental health issues, then there's going to be less stigma attached to parapsychology and paranormal issues, I think. And in all these realms with mental health and the paranormal, we're really dealing with consciousness. Yeah, that's right. Anything you want to say about consciousness? Sure. Of course, the first question that arises is, what is consciousness? You know, um, and there's different ways of defining it, and there's different types of consciousness. You know, for example, Carl Jung talked about the personal conscious consciousness and the collective unconscious. So, so each person has a personal history, which contributes to their personal consciousness, but then there's the collective unconscious, which is shared by all of you, all of humanity, you know, also called universal mind, you know. Um, so consciousness also relates to the mind, you know, and that again raises the question, where is the mind located? That's also something I read about in my book. Is the mind in the brain? Is the mind sometimes in the brain and sometimes out of the brain? Is the mind in the body or is the mind outside of the body? Um, certainly there's many different theories, you know, and many different concepts. But consciousness, to my way of thinking, is something that binds us all together. Something that we share as part of humanity, you know. Um, and I think that if we talk about consciousness, we have to talk about some of the deeper issues, some of the philosophical issues that, you know, mankind, humanity is struggling with. Um, and that also relates to, you know, how we relate to other people, how we relate to the natural world, and how we, how we relate to the spirit world. There's so many different aspects to it. And in all your years of being a psychiatrist and also working in these paranormal realms, what, what conclusions have you come to or have you drawn about consciousness? in relationship to where it might be located? My personal way of thinking is that consciousness is both in the mind, in the brain, in the body, and outside the brain. It can be local, and it can be non-local. You know, um, the same way a photon can be a wave or a particle. Mm -hmm. So there's like a whole series of um, physicists who've written about, you know, particle theory. Um, and a lot of it can be applied to our ideas about consciousness as well. And I do write about that in my book also. Can you describe a story of working with a patient and how you help them with the paranormal? This is probably a good time for me to say that, you know, when my book first came out, people were asking me if I was describing some of the experiences I had with my patients. So, you know, and I said, no, not really, because anything that a patient tells me is confidential. And under the Hippocratic Oath, I'm not allowed to repeat it. So when I write about paranormal experiences in my book, I'm writing mainly about my own experiences or about experiences that have been described in the literature, you know, or by books, in books written by other people, you know, but I don't really discuss what my patients tell me. You shared a story of another physician, Yvonne Kaysen, who had a near-death experience, and through her own experience, it also influenced how she practiced with her patients. That's true. She described an experience she had when she was a resident, 26 years old, accompanying a patient to the hospital in a small helicopter, and the, the plane went down over a lake. She ended up in the lake of the woods. It was winter. It was freezing cold. She was wearing a heavy parka, heavy boots, and she thought she was a goner. She thought there's no way she's going to survive this. But then she heard a voice in her head saying, swim, and she started swimming. And at that point, she left her body, and she was watching herself. She was 15 meters above her body watching herself, and she kept hearing that voice swim. She kept swimming. And she finally reached the shore. She, she found some roots in a tree and she grabbed onto it. She pulled herself in. 
and she survived. And then when when she got back home and she um, started to process the whole experience, she found, which many people who have had near-death experiences report, she started having some kind of psychic abilities where she could see people's auras and she was somehow prescient and she kind of related to people in a different way. And when she started telling her colleagues about what she had experienced, she started getting referrals from other doctors who had patients who had similar experiences. Now, in her case, she said one time when she was driving to visit a friend, she had a picture of her friend and she had the idea that her friend had meningitis because she saw her friend's brain covered in pus. She got to her friend's house. The friend only had a headache at that point, didn't have any other symptoms. So she told her friend about her vision and her friend went to the hospital and the other symptoms gradually appeared one by one and she was very sick. But because Dr. Chasen had this vision, she was able to save her friend's life. Basically, that's what happened. And as I said, at that point, Dr. Chasen, and she's in, she's in Ontario, um, she started getting referrals and started working with people who've had similar experiences. And also, she started reviewing all the literature about parapsychology and people who've had similar experiences. And she learned that these experiences are actually fairly common and have been written about and described in the literature for centuries. And even though there's a long history of parapsychology, most people don't know the history. And even if they knew the history, they wouldn't accept it. <laughs> because it's somehow outside of their frame of reference. Yeah, why do you think that is? The These, whatever you want to term them, mystical, paranormal, anomalous, spiritual experiences have been occurring for millennia. And yet, at least in our culture, um, as other cultures, they're very greatly accepted. We, there are still people who question them or are, like you say, are afraid to share their experiences, although it sounds like there are signs that that's changing. I'd say there's always been one segment of the population that's been interested, that's willing to study it and willing to accept it, willing to explore it. And even, you know, in the various religions, you know, there's sort of, um, you might say a fringe element, you know, in the different religions, you know, um, where they explore mystical and spiritual themes that are outside the written text, you know. Um, so I think there's always been that small group of people. Um, at the same time, the majority of people, they don't want to know about it. They don't want to hear about it because it interferes with their tidy little lives because it makes them question their existence. And it makes them think about, well, what, why am I here? What is life all about? You know, um, what is the meaning of my life? You know, so not everyone, I mean, it's also, I think, related to, as you said, social and cultural issues, but it's also related to personality type. You know, some people are just not interested, you know, and that's just the way it is, you know. Um, but I feel there's like, enough people, there's a big enough segment of the population that is interested, that has kept these ideas moving forward from generation to generation. You know, um, like, I think in Christianity, there's Gnosticism. In Judaism, there's the Kabbalists, you know, and in, in Muslim, there's the Sufis, you know. So there's always been a small group of people who are interested in, you know, exploring religion beyond the written text, you know, and looking more into the spiritual, mystical, mysterious, you know, unknown side of life. Yeah, and sometimes these experiences just literally hit people over the head, <laughs> and they just happen to them, which is frequently how people become interested in these, because in the paranormal, because they have their own experiences. That's right, and that's what happened to me. And that's why I say in my book that experience is the best teacher. I mean, that's not an original thought by any means, but I mean, I think it's true. You know, and people who are dyed in the wool, you know, conservatives, um, traditionalists, you know, can be completely turned around if they have an experience of their own and they're trying to understand it. 
And with me, you know, when I, um, when I was in medical school, 19 years old, I had a precognitive dream where I dreamt the um, respirology exam the night before the exam. So that's when I was 19. When I was 23, I was a psychiatry resident at McGill University. One night I saw myself floating on the ceiling, looking down at my body in bed, you know. And the first couple of times, I was just willing to say, that's weird, shrug it off and get on with my day. But after these experiences kept happening, it was too much for me to ignore. You know, and it got to the point where I felt the need to share these experiences, not just for my own purposes, but to help other people feel free to talk about their own experiences. To say, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not psychotic, I've had these experiences, you know, and and it's okay. It's okay to have these experiences and it's okay to talk about them. Well, and clearly people do want to talk about them because they do share with people like yourself and other professionals and parapsychologists in private their own experiences. And it does seem that they want to share it with somebody. That seems to be an important aspect. That's right. But I think in order for them to share, they need to feel safe. They need to feel safe to share. You know? um, so I think it's important to try to create an atmosphere where the person feels accepted, regardless of what they say, you know, regardless of how weird or strange it might seem to us. Why do you think it's so important for people to share these experiences and to feel accepted and safe um, having someone hear their experiences? Well, because if they haven't talked about it, it seems that there's a part of themselves they won't accept. And they feel there's a part of themselves that's weird, strange, even shameful. But if they feel there's someone else who's willing to listen to them, who's had a similar experience, it makes them feel better about themselves. It makes them feel, well, maybe this is normal. Maybe I'm not a weirdo. You know, maybe other people have these experiences. And I mean, that happened to me as well. You know, I, I read in my book about one time where I felt a hand on my shoulder when I was lying in bed. And then I met someone else who said, she had the same experience. She said, oh, you had the hand on the shoulder too? And then I met a, a third person who had the hand on the shoulder. If you have the time, I'll just tell you this. It's just a brief story. Well, you know how ministers and priests and rabbis go to visit patients in the hospital? Mm-hmm. So I was talking to this man who was a rabbi who was visiting a patient in the hospital and the patient was very sick, he was going for surgery, and you know, he had some kind of liver disease and his liver function tests were all abnormal. So while he was sitting next to the patient, he was praying with him, he was meditating with him, suddenly he felt a hand on his shoulder. And then, just before they took the patient for surgery, they did some more blood tests to get a baseline. And all the blood tests came back normal. And they canceled the surgery. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's a true story. Oh, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. What meaning have you ascribed to some of these personal paranormal experiences you've shared? Well, the meaning, the basic meaning to me is that there's more to this life than meets the eye. We can't accept everything at face value. You know, sometimes, this might sound a little odd, but sometimes I get messages in dreams. Not odd at all. Oh, okay. I got this message one time, and it said, this is a world of illusion, and the biggest illusion is time. And that's actually going to be the subject of my next book, The Illusion of Time. But what I'm saying is these experiences have convinced me there's more to this life than meets the eye, and we're, we're operating on a superficial level if we just accept things as they come, as they appear to us, without thinking about a deeper meaning. And again, it relates to the existential question, you know, why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? You know, um, and I think, you know, these experiences have um, encouraged me, you know, in terms of introspection, but also in terms of learning, you know, about the spirit world and connecting with other people who are also interested in those same topics, you know, interested in spirituality and interested in meaning, you know, and purpose and so on, you know. So as a result, it's it's changed my life, it's changed my relationships, you know, and for me, it's been a a net positive, you know. I mean, it's, it's been great, and I could have never anticipated 
in my wildest dreams that I would have had these experiences, but I did. I didn't ask for them. I wasn't looking for them. You know, I even, in my book, I say, I didn't go looking for spirit. Spirit came calling for me. <laughs> Beautiful. That, that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course, I had to be open to it, you know, at the same time. So it's kind of a two-way street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good point, because some people, do you think they can block or shut down these experiences? Absolutely, they do. Especially if they're frightened by them, especially if they challenge their their way of life, you know, and their traditional religion or whatever it is that they're worried about. You know, um, some people are too frightened to explore these um, experiences and they just shut them down and they won't talk about them and they won't share them and they just kind of pretend it never happened, which is unfortunate. How might you assist somebody who does have an event like an angel coming to them or a dream that feels like a message and it does, they might be intrigued but also slightly frightened of it. How might you assist them? I think the best way to help someone and what's helped me the most is finding another person who's had a similar experience. Because once you realize that you're not the only one, it's almost like you can breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, so I'm not crazy. You know, so I'm not the only one, you know. And then that liberates you in a way to talk about some of your experiences. And once you talk about one, you can talk about two, you know. And you can start, you know, it's like it's like you're opening the floodgates because people have been holding a secret for years and they suddenly feel it's okay to talk about it. And then they can just talk freely. I mean, if you know, when I've, like, done a book signing, for example, after doing a reading, people will come up to me to get to get me to sign the book. And while I'm doing that, they start sharing with me some of their own experiences. And almost everyone in line was sharing a personal experience that they've never told anyone. So I feel, in a way, you know, I'm happy that I can help people feel free enough to share their experiences. Because, you know, as you said in your question, if they can accept their experience, it helps them to accept themselves. And also it can help them to accept other people who've had similar experiences. And that seems to also demonstrate how much we all do really want to feel connected to each other. That's right. That's so important. Because if you're carrying the secret and you've never told anyone, you feel very isolated. You feel there's something wrong with you, you know. But if you can share your secret and you can feel that the other person you're talking to thinks you're okay, there's nothing wrong with you, it's it's perfectly normal to have that type of experience, I think that's going to help your self-esteem. Absolutely. Unless, of course, it is negatively impacting somebody's life, then they might want to get perhaps more support or maybe even professional support. Well, certainly. I don't want to be a Pollyanna. I mean, not everyone is going to think it's wonderful to have these experiences. Some are very frightened by them, mm-hmm. you know. And some people who've had um, mystical experiences experiences, could it, uh, there's a risk of experiencing a brief psychotic episode if there's a family history of psychosis. And Dr. Kaysen writes about that in her book as well. You know, um, so it's not a wonderful, spiritual, uplifting experience for everyone. You know, it certainly has been for me. And I think it's because I accepted it and I was, you know, open about it. Um, and I wasn't so worried about what other people would think. Mm-hmm. But it's not that way for everyone. That's why I don't want to gloss over the fact that it can be very frightening. Some of these experiences can be very frightening. And it often helps to talk to someone, you know, someone outside of your own family, you know, to talk to a counselor if you're having anxiety or if you're having depression or if you're having some kind of, you know, phobias or panic attacks or whatever it is. You know, it can be very helpful to talk to a trained therapist or professional counselor. As part of destigmatizing the paranormal, you also uh, do a wonderful job of addressing the skeptics. Thank you. I think it's important to look at both sides of the issue because a person can go back and forth between being a skeptic and being a believer. Also, it's important to say what you're skeptical about. You can be skeptical about certain things, but not skeptical about other things. 
so there can be shades of gray, you know. Um, sometimes skeptics, for example, there's a, a very famous skeptic called Michael Shermer, who was the president of the Skeptic Society, and he was the editor of the Skeptics magazine, you know, and he gave um, some explanations for various phenomena. However, he had an experience himself, which completely changed his way of life and his way of thinking about these things. And he actually wrote about this experience in an article which was published in the Scientific American in 2014. So just briefly to describe what happened, he was getting married to a woman from Germany. They were getting married in their home. And just as they were about to begin the ceremony, they could hear some music coming from somewhere. They didn't know where it was coming from. So they tried to trace it, and they went to one of the bedrooms at the back of the house. They found this old transistor radio shoved into a drawer on the bottom of the chest of drawers, shoved into the back. And it was an old transistor radio that the bride's grandfather, who was in Germany, had given to her many years ago, but it had stopped working, so they just kept it in this chest of drawers. Now, the bride was originally from Germany. Her family was all there, and she was missing her family and wishing they were there with her at her wedding. But when they found this radio that had been a gift from the bride's grandfather playing some romantic music, and it hadn't played for years, she took it as a message that her grandfather was there with her in spirit and that he approved of her marriage. So they didn't know what to make of it, but they went on with the wedding ceremony. And the next day the radio stopped working and it never worked again. So uh, the, the um, skeptic, Michael Shermer wrote an article saying how his core beliefs had been shaken to the core by an anomalous experience. And that's another example of how experience changes everything. A lot of the skeptics who write about out-of-body or near-death experience have never had those experiences themselves. You know, and they find, they find it hard to believe that that could actually happen. Also, they make up all kinds of um, rationalizations, you know, particularly with near-death experiences or with, um, you know, visions of deceased loved ones, or with deathbed visions, often they'll say, especially for patients in hospital, they'll say, well, they're, they're medicated, or they're confused, or there's a lack of oxygen to the brain. But in fact, you know, all of those rationalizations have been disputed. Um, in fact, patients who are not confused and who are not medicated are more likely to have deathbed visions compared to the patients who are confused and medicated. And as far as near-death experience or deathbed visions being due to lack of oxygen to the brain, there was a cardiologist, you know, who did a study on patients who died um, from cardiac arrest and then were resuscitated. He said, well, if it was due to lack of oxygen to the brain, then 100% of the patients would have reported a near-death experience. Because when the heart, the heart stops beating, it stops pumping blood the brain and of course oxygen is carried in the blood so all of those patients who had a cardiac arrest would have had a near-death experience but only 18 to 20 percent reported a near-death experience also there's been reports of what are called shared visions, where medical personnel and family at the bedside see the same vision that the person who's dying sees well even if the patient had a lack of oxygen to the brain the medical personnel and the relatives didn't have lack of oxygen to their brain so so all the all these skeptics, you know, who are trying to rationalize these phenomena have been proven false. But no matter how many times you tell them that's not possible, you know, they won't believe you because they're so entrenched in their rationalism that they can their their beliefs are so firm they cannot be shaken. You know. So that's just the way it is. Some people never believe it, some people never accept it. But, I mean, you still have to keep getting, I feel, I have to still keep getting the message out there because more and more people are, I think, open to these ideas and more and more, you know, professionals are writing about their own experiences. Yeah, William Peters uh, recently did some research and published it in a hospice journal about shared death experiences. And it's great that there are more professionals willing to share their experiences, and clearly it's helping people. Would you say more than harming people for these professionals to share their experiences versus keeping them to themselves? That's right. And I mean, as a measure of how widely accepted these phenomena are becoming, 
I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but there was recently a series on Netflix called Surviving Death. Yes. Dr. Chris Carr, who works in a hospice, talked about some of his experiences, you know, dealing with patients, you know, who have deathbed visions. And deathbed visions are extremely common. You know, the most common vision is a deceased relative who's come to accompany them to the other side, you know. But this doctor said before he started working in this hospice, he had no use for anything that was labeled paranormal or spiritual. He had no time for that. But he said his heart was cracked open after 1,400 interviews with dying patients, and almost all of them reported deathbed visions. That's amazing. Is there any advice you would give to your fellow psychiatry professionals about the paranormal? I would say as a general rule, but this applies to many different areas of psychiatry. As a general rule, keep an open mind. Don't be judgmental. And don't be too quick to dismiss what the patient is reporting. I'd say, you know, be open to it and discuss it with the patient. And, you know, you have to, whether it's a patient or anyone, you have to respect the individual regardless of what their beliefs are. You know, um, so, I mean, I would say you have to be open. You have to show the patient respect. You have to be willing to listen to whatever it is they're saying and try not to judge them. Great advice. Is there anything else you would like to share about destigmatizing the paranormal? Well, what I'd like to share is that I think it's important, no matter how many times you're knocked down, to keep getting back up. You're going to encounter skeptics everywhere. But if you have your own beliefs, you have your own experiences, you can't deny them. You have to be true to yourself. You know, and it doesn't matter what other people think. You know, it's more important how you feel about yourself. Great advice, Dr. Manuel Matus. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing all of your great experiences and really inspiring people to embrace their themselves and others as well. Thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you for a great interview. I enjoyed speaking with you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 